first, just let me introduce you to the audience. We're here with Gerald Epstein, who's a professor and co-director at the Political Economy Research Institute at UMass Amherst. And today we're going to talk about modern monetary theory. So I thought about perhaps starting starting off with what I think it is, but then I was kind of embarrassed to do it because to tell you the truth, I don't really understand it very well. Um, so would, would you mind giving us uh, the short sort of elevator pitch on what modern monetary theory is? Okay, well, modern monetary theory is a, a type of macroeconomic theory and money theory which has been around for probably 15 or 20 years, but only recently has it gained a lot of attention. And it's gained a lot of attention partly because uh, several progressive uh, p political candidates and political people have uh, talked, said good things about it. So that includes um, uh, AOC, Anastasio-Cortez, mm -hmm. and Bernie Sanders and others. And this led, I think, to a lot of publicity in the press about modern money theory. Um, and it has quite a few followers, mostly in the United States, but uh, also um, a few in other parts of the, of the country. So the main idea is that in countries where they have so what they call sovereign currencies, and I'll talk about what that is in a minute, mm -hmm. that uh, they don't have to worry about running budget deficits they don't have to worry about taxing people to pay for government spending. All, all that has to happen is that the central bank, that is, in our case, the Federal Reserve, uh, just prints the money and pays for it. And um, in that situation, they say, the question that everybody's always asking politicians, how are you going to pay for this, mm -hmm. for them is kind of a nonsensical question because they say, um, it doesn't have to pay, be paid for through tax revenue or cuts in government spending. Um, we, the Federal Reserve just prints money. Okay, so that both seems wrong, but also it does sound sort of just like mainstream, or I should say mainstream heterodox economics. Or I mean, I remember, and you can tell me that I'm totally wrong here, I remember that some prominent Keynesians during the 08 crisis were saying, you know what, we can kind of spend our way out of this crisis because we are not like, uh, I remember Paul Krugman saying, we're not like a family. The government is not like a family. A government can just print money. We're never going to run out of money. So how is this different than that? So I think you're, you're right that um, it has a family resemblance to, resemblance to um, a lot of Keynesian thinking. And heterodox economics is often a, a particular version of, of Keynesianism or Keynesianism um, shares ideas with, with heterodox economics. And ever since John Maynard Keynes wrote his work in the 1930s about the Great Depression, economists have understood that if you're in a depression, or if you have a lot of unemployment, that the government can spend uh, more than it takes in in tax revenue and fees, uh, and that that will uh, do a, a good job of putting people back to work, and that will reduce unemployment. And then as the economy starts to grow, uh, tax revenue will go up because um, in that case, people have more income, they'll pay more income taxes. Businesses have more profits, they'll pay more profit taxes. So there's a, a similarity in the sense that they both agree that government spending can and government deficits can create jobs and more economic growth. I think where they really differ is that modern money th theory says that 
with countries with sovereign money never have to worry about the budget deficits. They never have to worry about how much the government is borrowing. So um, I, I think uh, on Times Square or someplace down in downtown Manhattan, there's a there's a clock that's, that ticks off how much the U.S. government uh, debt is, mm-hmm. you know, in the many, many billions of dollars. And what the modern money theorists say is that, well, this is kind of a nonsense number. It doesn't mean anything because the United States, the dollar is uh, the, um, the supreme currency in the world economy. The Federal Reserve can just print as much of it as we want and ne- we'll never have to pay back this debt. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, uh, some... So in some ways, modern money theory is an, ex- an extreme version of a, of a more heterodox, as you said, or Keynesian uh, approach. And you also said that you think it's wrong. And I think the, que- the question is, is it right or is it wrong? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's something that um, I've written a book about. Um, and I agree with you that I think in many ways it's misleading and it's wrong. And the reason is that even a country like the United States, where the U.S. dollar is in high demand all around the world, um, that there are limits to the amount at which amount which the Federal Reserve can just print money, and everybody will still want to, to hold on to that money. Now, we don't know exactly what those limits are, mm-hmm. um, but uh, the idea that by definition there are no limits, which is what the modern money theory people basically say, uh, I think is misleading and it's wrong. To this point, have there have there been limits, or have people been sort of having an unlimited appetite for for holding U.S. dollars? Well, um, that's a very good question, and so I, I I agree with the spirit of the question. That is, whereas I think a lot of modern money theorists tend to work in the realm of of abstract ideas and theory. The real question is, well, what do we know from history, and what do we know from practice on the ground? Mm. And so your question is is a version of the exactly the kinds of questions we should be asking. That is, well, uh, practically speaking, uh, what are the limits? We have to divide the world up into countries that have different kinds of currencies. We have countries that uh, have what we call hard currencies. That is, uh, they have currencies that are widely ex- accepted in international trade and finance to buy goods, to by investments, by oil, etc., and there are relatively few countries like that in the world. There's the United States, there's the European Union or the Euro area, there's Japan, there's um, Switzerland and the United Kingdom and a few others. Mm. Most other countries, their currencies are not widely accepted. And so, if you're uh, from Chile or you're from Nicaragua and you want to um, buy things internationally, people are going to ask for dollars or one of those other currencies. Mm-hmm. So countries that have these hard currencies, generally speaking, have much more freedom to print more of that currency for a while without getting into big trouble, whereas almost all the other countries in the world don't have that kind of freedom. They can't do it. And among the countries that have this freedom, the United States has more than anybody else because the U.S. dollar for historical reasons, partly coming out of the Second World War and because of uh, U.S. large military and the U.S. large financial markets, etc., the dollar is in most demand around the world, and so that gives the, the dollar uh, most freedom. But it's not absolute. So, for example, 
in the late 1970s, when we had uh, an accelerating inflation rate under President Jimmy Carter, the dollar's value started going down and down and down uh, because people didn't want to hold the dollar internationally. And they were afraid that the dollar was going to go down at, a, uh, at an accelerating pace. So Paul Volcker, who be became chair of the Federal Reserve in 1978, decided to stop this because there was a limit to how much they could print dollars. And he dramatically increased interest rates. And in doing that, in 1979, 1980, it caused a, a really severe recession and ultimately led to financial problems all over the world, leading mm -hmm. to the third debt crisis, etc. So, yes, um, in that period, there was a limit that we saw resulting from printing too much money. Now, in the current period, things are different because U.S. inflation is very low. Um, interest rates are very low. Uh, there's a big demand for U.S. dollars uh, because the U.S. because of, of the huge size of international financial markets that use dollars. So in my view, the 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 U.S. has more space and more room to run budget deficits than than it has in some other periods of its history. But still, it's not infinite. And even the modern money theory people say, and this is an important point, that um, ultimately there is a constraint if the economy reaches full employment and full capacity utilization. Because after the point of full employment, and we have the lowest unemployment rate that we've had in 60 years, and in a situation where we're using all of our factories, all our mines, all our, our other resources at full capacity, then if the government starts spending more, it's going to take some resources away from someplace else in the economy. And that could start leading to more inflation, at which point we might get a cycle upward of inflation. Mm -hmm. um, so that's even the modern, modern money theory people accept that. So the question is, um, how should we think about budget deficits and government spending? Mm -hmm. And to get back to the heterodox economists that you mentioned, the way I and other heterodox colleagues have talked about this for years is that you can get overly obsessed with the budget deficit, just as the modern money theories warn us. But the key thing is if, if you're running a budget deficit, if you're borrowing money, not only from our own citizens, but from from the Saudis, from the Chinese, from countries all around the world, then you want to make sure that you, the government is investing that money productively. So it's leading to uh, better, more welfare in our economy, among our people, more productivity growth, more uh, real investment. So in things like infrastructure, education, healthcare, you have to see what the government is investing the money in. If the government is just throwing it away and giving it as tax breaks to rich people so they can have more yachts mm -hmm. or they can park their money in tax havens around the world, then what we're doing is running up a debt, often to foreigners, and we don't have anything to show with it. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think, a real danger. And the modern money theory people do not recognize this as a problem because they don't think it matters. Mm -hmm. I mean, to be fair, people like AOC and, and Bernie, when they propose things like the employer of last resort policy or Medicare for all, you would agree that they're not, that's not just throwing money away, right? I mean, that's that's a good way to spend the money if you're going to 
spend the money some way, right? Yes, it is a good way. And in fact, even though both of them have sort of toyed with the modern money theory people, mm -hmm. if you follow the way the campaign's going, um, whenever they ask Bernie, how are you going to pay for something like mm -hmm. uh, Medicare for All or something else, he's got a plan. Yeah. Now, the thing is, he understands that when you're um, implementing a policy that's going to bring you close to full employment, you've you've got to figure say how you're going to pay for it. Otherwise, you're taking resources away from someplace else in the economy. Mm -hmm. And to, to 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 ignore that, I think, is actually to bury a really important debate in our country. Number one, should you tax the very 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 wealthy people, the billionaires, because they have too much money? Number two, if you're going to spend more on product, socially productive things, should you cut other things like excessive military spending, subsidies to multinational corporations? Mm -hmm. um, if, if you have the point of view that modern money theory has, those kinds of questions are not central to the discussion. They might be added on at the end, but they're not central. Whereas if you understand that in order to really engage in a full employment economy and spend on health care and other things, you're going to have to take money from someplace else, including possibly from, from very wealthy people. That becomes a central part of your argument. What are your, our national priorities? What should our government be spending on? Should billionaires pay no taxes, mm -hmm. et cetera? I mean, this is really interesting because now it, it makes sense why there's some people in finance, some people who make lots of money, like... MMT because it doesn't you can do these programs and you can continue to spend anywhere you want and you don't have to tax them Yeah, I guess that's that's pretty clear There are a couple of things if I could just take a couple more minutes of your time if that's okay mm -hmm, Sure that, that I'm that I am confused about so you make the point that even if MMT was right and it worked here in the United States it would still have pretty bad effects for less developed countries. Can you explain why that might be? Right. I tried to argue in my book that uh, the whole MMT package, which includes full employment, uh, federal spending, and permanent, short, very short-term interest rates, which is part of their program, we haven't talked much about that, mm -hmm. could potentially have negative effects uh, on emerging, so-called emerging markets, developing countries in Asia, Latin America, Africa, and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. the, the reason is, we spoke before about the, the important role of the U.S. dollar. Yeah. Um, and the dollar is the dominant currency in the world economy. And economists, there's a lot of evidence that economists have developed which show that U.S. monetary policy, that is whether interest rates are high or low, um, et cetera, uh, have a huge impact on the rest of the world, largely because um, countries and, and businesses in other parts of the world often borrow uh, in dollars, U.S. dollars. Mm -hmm. So what that means is that the Federal Reserve monetary policy, whether interest rates are low or high, is really, to some large extent, monetary policy for the whole world, mm -hmm. not just for the United States. So... The Federal Reserve typically doesn't care about that. It typically doesn't take into account the impact of its policies on the rest of the world. But I've always thought that a, a progressives who care about standards of living 
in the rest of the world, ought to, ought to propose monetary policies and fiscal policies in the U.S. that do take into account their spillover effects on the rest of the world. That is, we should care about the effect of our policies on the rest of the world. So it's clear that if um, the, the Federal Reserve lowers interest rates very low and keeps it very low for a long time, that lots and lots of capital, lots and lots of finance through banks and insurance companies, etc., is going to um, flow toward towards developing countries where the interest rates are a bit higher. And we've seen in the past that this leads to big bubbles, mm. and stock market bubbles and investment bu bubbles, real estate bubbles in those countries um, and elsewhere. And that can lead also to then a massive crash. Having an excessively low interest rate policy in the U.S. or, on the other hand, um, all of a sudden raising interest rates dramatically, which pulls the money quickly and unexpectedly out of the developing countries, can also create problems. Mm. So I'm worried that um, this monetary fiscal policy uh, net, uh, policy that the MMT proposes is a little bit too much America first policy and that progressives should think about more carefully about the impacts of their policies on the rest of the world. You mentioned before that other countries are holding the dollar, that the dollar is supreme. And is that what people mean when they talk about exorbitant privilege? That's exactly what they mean. Okay. So when I say the U.S. has more freedom to borrow a lot of money and run big budget deficits, which is what the MMT story kind of depends on, and, and that other countries don't have that ability, that is a privilege that the United States has. And the French, uh, in, in the days following the Second World War, when the Bretton Woods system was being created, mm -hmm. said this was not only a privilege, it was an exorbitant privilege that okay. the U.S. could um, abuse. And I think one way to view some of the extreme versions of MMT is, as in my view, a bit of an abuse of this exorbitant privilege. Mm -hmm. And you said that they have, we have this exorbitant privilege or this, this supremacy because of our military. And that, that was confusing. So what does our military have to do with the fact that people borrow in dollars? Okay, so it has to do with a number of factors. Um, normally, when economists talk about why the U.S. dollar reigns supreme, they talk about the fact that we have these very big and very liquid financial markets. Mm -hmm. They talk about the fact that we have a central bank that generally tries to keep inflation in the U.S. relatively low and stable, so there are no financial surprises. Mm -hmm. They talk about the fact that the Federal Reserve can act as a, a national and global lender of last resort, as it did during the great financial crisis recently, mm -hmm. bailing out banks and central banks around the world. So those are all important. And the fact that um, there's still a fair amount of trade that the United States engages in. So those are all important. But what I was trying to argue, and there is some evidence for this that I cite, is that underlying this is the fact that um, the United States has a very large military, has the dominant <clears throat> military power that it can use to protect private property here and in elsewhere in the world. Mm. If there's a threat to the oil fields in the Middle East that might end up driving up the price of oil, 
leading to a big oil price inflation. Um, the United States in the past has taken military action to prevent that from happening. Um, for example, the invasion of Iraq presumably was at least partly, if not largely, driven by that mm. attempted to defend oil. So the United States military essentially has the ability and is normally used to protect American capitalism and the security of property of American capitalism here and elsewhere. And so um, I think investors feel more secure that uh, there's not going to be a communist coup or a here or elsewhere that's going to under, uh, destroy that. And so the dollar feels more secure.